0: We have been studying for the last several weeks a series of messages that we've entitled, Let's Go Be the Church. And today is, is one of the more important messages. I believe they're all important, but this particular one's been on my heart for several weeks. And I'm entitling this, this particular message, The Family You Never Knew You Had. The Family You Never Knew You Had. I want to encourage you to find Acts chapter 10. And really, the entire chapter of Acts 10 and, and uh, even chapter 11, if we had time, we would read both chapters because there's an entire story here that you ought to know about. But we're going to focus just on the pieces that we can, and I'm going to try to help tell the story. You know, Jesus made it clear that the church was to spread out and to spread the gospel, not just in Jerusalem and not just to Jews, but to all nations and and several years had gone by since Jesus had been raised up into heaven. Several years had gone by since Pentecost and the Holy Spirit had come. Jesus said, "After the Holy Spirit's come on you, you'll receive power. You'll be my witnesses." And um, and the whole idea of the Spirit coming is that they would spread and share the gospel. And it just just was not happening. In Acts chapter ten, God just steps in to the life of Peter. And something very remarkable begins to take place. He has left Jerusalem, perhaps one of the very first times he's done so since the Holy Spirit has come. He's traveling through uh, various towns in Judea. Some, some, He went to Samaria, preached the gospel there. Those people were Jewish, but they were of a different stripe. And, and, um, and often there was deep uh, division between regular Jews and Samaritans. He had experienced some miracles. He had seen a lady raised from the dead, Uh, just remarkable things have been taking place. And now he's staying at the home of a man who, who tans animal skins for a living, which was an unclean practice in the Jewish scheme of what was clean and what was unclean. And he's staying in this man's home. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 9, this is what we read. The next day, as they went on their journey, drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the 6th hour. And the way they numbered hours then was the first hour after daylight was hour number 1. Okay, so whenever the sun came up there's an hour after that. So if it's about the 6th hour, what time was that? About noon. About noon. Then he became very hungry. Do you get hungry at noon? I do. He became very hungry and wanted to eat. That's why the, we stopped church before noon most of the time. He became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. A voice spoke to him again the second time, but God is cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold the men who had been sent from Cornelius, had made an inquiry for Simon's house, and stood before the gate. Father, would you take your word, and you would would you cause it to become very real to us, very applicable to our lives? I pray that your Holy Spirit, moving in this room, would speak to every heart. We pray, Father, that that. Um, as we leave this place we would have a sense that we have been in your presence and that we have heard your voice and that you have spoken to us and given us very clear direction for we ask it in Jesus name amen you know it's always big news in fact you can you you don't have to search very far it's always big news when when someone discovers family they never knew they had Uh, they find some long-lost relative parent brother cousin somebody and then they come and meet together for the first time and people the news people will get their cameras out and they'll interview these people because it's just a lot of drama with that there's a show that's been on for a couple of years called uh, long your long lost family or something like that i've never watched it i'm not recommending it necessarily maybe wonderful i don't know but it's just that kind of a show where they interview people And they walk people through this process usually discovered with DNA they find these missing relatives well like those people in the news Peter in Acts chapter 10 is in for a big surprise because up to this moment he has never seen a non-Jewish person receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior he's never seen it unless you're sitting here and you're Jewish today what has happened in your life if you know jesus and you trusted him as your lord and savior peter had never seen anything like that in his entire life and so he's in for a big surprise because god has been working with a man named cornelius cornelius is a military man he's italian and he leads a group of roman soldiers but he's also a very devout man and in caesarea god appeared to him and spoke to him uh telling him that his praying Had been recognized by god his giving to meet needs had been recognized by god and he said i want you to take some of your folks i want you to go find a man named peter and i want you to bring him and he's going to tell you what you need to know Uh, by the way if anyone ever tells you god doesn't hear the prayers of lost people never heard about cornelius because cornelius didn't know jesus yet and so cornelius sends those men and as they are traveling takes about a day and a half, two days, to get from Caesarea to Joppa where, where Peter was. And as they're traveling, they get there and they ask for uh, Simon the Tanner's house where, where Peter's staying. And as they approach the gate of that house, Peter is dying of hunger on the roof, has, has a moment alone and his heart turns to prayer. We're going to say something about that in a moment. Just turns to communion with God. And in the midst of that communion with God, he has this vision. Now you need to understand that the animals that appeared in that sheet that was coming down from heaven in his vision were all the things that good Jewish people were not supposed to eat. And it was clear that God was speaking to him. He said, not so, Lord, when he was told to kill and eat. And he didn't understand, even though it took three times, and seems like everything happened to Peter in threes, didn't it? Denied three times, Jesus said three times, do you love me? And then when God's trying to speak to him now, it took three times to make the point, and he still didn't understand it. If you ever feel like you're in a slow group, Peter's your man. (laughs) And I'm right there. I always feel like I'm in a slow group, that God has to really work me over to to make a point to me. What Peter's about to discover is that, that God's family is much larger than he ever imagined. And that God's family is intended to be one with no division, no separation, no distinction in terms of worth or value of any member of the body or the family of God. And he's about to see this. He's about to learn this. And it's going to be a big surprise to him. I want you to see briefly how the Word of God dismisses differences in the family of God. For example, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, the Apostle Paul writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek. And we're talking about in the family. There are Jews and Greeks. They exist. But in the family of God, there's no distinction. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. No differences in terms of who you are before God and your worth, and not only that, in your relationship to other Christians. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, he writes, "...where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all." So when you meet a brother in Christ, the most important thing to know about that person is that Christ lives in them. And once you determine that someone is your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ, your behavior towards them is automatically described and dictated by the Word of God. You don't have to have an option. You don't have an option. You just got to love them. How is this possible? How does this happen when someone simply trusts Jesus as their Lord and Savior? You know, one of the things that impressed me, and I've, I've shared these stories before, and I'm not going to go through all of them again, but I grew up in the service, in a military family, and we lived in a lot of different places. I, I went to seven elementary schools, and two high schools before I started moving around as an adult. And uh, my wife and I, we, I, I can't even, I've not counted how many times we have moved, packed everybody up, and and moved about. And so it was very common for me, especially as a kid, to be the new guy on the block, the new kid at school, and, and have to make new friends. And I, I had to learn that as a social skill. If not, I would have been pretty lonely. And and so we moved around all the time, and all the time having to meet new people. It was hard. I I didn't particularly enjoy the process, but, but you had to do it. And then when I came to know Christ when I was 17, at a particular moment in my life where I felt lonely and I felt cut off from a lot of people, I didn't have an extended family down the street. I didn't have friends I'd known since the first grade. And when i came to know christ and i walked into that little church saw me not just as a teenager they saw me as one of their children in christ one of their brothers in christ they hugged my neck they said hey don how are you doing they said how was school this week what's happening and then later as i i moved even as a senior in high school we we i became part of a church plant we didn't call it that back then it was just a mission a storefront Baptist mission in Southeast Dayton Ohio and I walked in we had 18 people on a on a Sunday there were only three youth in the church I was 30% of them and I walked in there and they hugged my neck and they loved on me and they said hey Don I was their son in Christ I was their brother in Christ I felt it it was real to me and then I went to college I remember going off to school and uh, I grew up in San Antonio, and so I went back, stayed a while with my grandfather, and, and I found a church there. I walked into that church, and uh, we had a, a student ministry there, and that was a big one from my vantage point. I went from three to one of a hundred and something. And I didn't know anybody, and I walked into that ministry, and I walked into those homes where they would gather. And the, the, the student pastor's wife, the youth pastor's wife, he was, he was retired or just gotten out of the military. She was a little Korean lady, she was about that tall. And the moment she met me, she hugged me. And she took me around to everybody in the room. She said, This is Don, he's a really neat guy. She didn't even know me. I said, he's a really neat guy. Little Korean lady. And I felt at home. That church eventually licensed me to preach. And I could go on and tell story after story of going to places, a church where I didn't know anybody. But i went in with the expectation that even though i didn't know anybody that i was going to meet my family people i didn't even know were part of my family but i was getting ready to go meet my family traveled for 10 years in arkansas most every sunday in a different church often with the expectation i'm about to meet new members of my family do you feel that way when you come to church do you feel like you're coming to a family gathering how is it possible for us to think in those terms? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, talking about the division specifically between Jewish and non-Jewish people, it says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made both, these two, both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. How did he do it? You go on and read. He did it with his own body. Dying on the cross, he removed the barrier between every person in his Family. The problem is we still encounter barriers, don't we? We have all kinds of barriers that we encounter. Some of them we're well aware of, some of them maybe not so much. And so this morning I want to, uh, I don't want to say I want to meddle, but do we put barriers where God has torn them down? The question I want to explore is how to tear down the obstacles to experiencing the family of God. How do we take those obstacles and remove them? See, we're a pretty big church. You know, when I first came to Win, I started introducing myself to people I didn't know at the gas pumps wherever I met people and they'd say they say you're pastor where and I'd say Win Baptist. Oh, you're at the big church. You know, I thought we were called Win Baptist Church, but you know, we got another name in town. We're the big church. And, you know, you come into a room like this, and maybe to you this is a big room. But how, how do you get to know people? Well, our, our plan, our strategy, our desire, our biblical conviction is that the way you do that is by becoming part of a small group. So even as we grow in number, we become smaller in relationships. And that's why we have Bible study groups that meet on Sunday morning, other groups that meet during the week, other groups that meet during the summer. And so that we can form those relationships How to tear down the obstacles to experiencing the family of God. Well, that's a practical way, but let me move into into some very specific areas. There's a lot of things we could talk about. Let me move into three areas specifically. Here's the first one. Know your social borders, then ignore them. Know your social borders, then ignore them. In verse 28, when Peter begins to speak to Cornelius and the household, it says, then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection. Now, for Peter, he describes it. He says it. He says, my being here at this moment in your house, in your home, I am crossing all kinds of social boundaries that I've got. He didn't put it on them. He put it on himself. He said, you know, it's illegal for a Jewish man to do what I'm doing. He's not there alone. The Bible tells us that when he left Joppa, he took six other men with him. I suspect he knew what was coming. And he wanted witnesses. And there were six other Jewish men there with him. Now, some of you are going to think I'm focused strictly on one kind of division in the body of Christ, and that is race. And I'm not but racial boundaries are one area and it's one of the easiest ones for us to talk about because we all have a lot of thoughts experiences ideas concerning that but i want you to understand we're talking about something much larger we're talking about a much larger issue and a much larger problem and that is how can a group of this size with all the different backgrounds ethnicities and and um, experiences that we have just in this room How can we become an authentic, biblical, Christ-centered community? How can we do that? Well, one is I've got to recognize I've got some social borders in my life. I've got some some experiences unique to me that you don't have. I've got some ideas and thoughts that are different than yours. I've got, um, I come from places that many of you don't come from. I root for football teams that most of you don't root for. (laughs) And I've been here five years, and so I can make some frank observations. I believe that we're challenged on this issue of crossing our own social borders. The problem in many churches, not just in ours, is that many churches have closed their borders. Very difficult for anyone to break into that group. Sometimes we look at it and we say, well, that's a smaller membership church or just a family church. If you weren't blood-related to that particular group, you can't break in. And, And sometimes it is that simple. Other times it's a lot more complex than that. And as we go, I think it'll be more clear. Let me share with you four reasons why we will not cross our own social borders. Four reasons. I want you to think about this, and I don't want you to look at anybody else as we go through these. I really hope that you'll, in a humble way, just sit before the Lord and say, Lord, where are my borders? We all got them. Where are my borders, and will I cross them? Okay. Four reasons why we will not cross our own social borders. Number one, I don't need those people. I think this is a big one. I don't need those people. Uh, My needs are met with the group I've already got i don't need to take on anybody else in my life my relational cup is full and and in a small community like win arkansas it's very easy for us to fall into that especially when we come to church because we have family we have friends that we've known all of our lives we have an existing community and framework of relationships is not in your network what about the person who's new to win Arkansas? What about the person who's different, maybe has lived here all their life, but they've lived in a different part of town or in a different circle of relationships than you? And so one of the reasons is simply I don't need that person. I'm not being ugly when I say that. I'm just saying that if my mindset is that church is about meeting my needs, my needs are already met. I don't need to find community in a small group. I've already got all the community I can handle. Until we recognize that that's a boundary that we have, we're never going to have the kind of biblical community that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. A second reason we don't cross our own social borders. I don't see those people. I don't see those people. I'm referring now to a blind spot. I've said it before. I believe it with all my heart. There are 6,000 people, at least, in Wynn, Arkansas, who are not in church this morning, They were not in church last week. They'll not be in church next week. I'm not talking about just our church. I'm talking about any church. We know that from the research that's been done in Arkansas and all across the Arkansas Delta. We know that because we can add up the average attendance of every church in town. And we know how many people aren't there and aren't coming. The problem is, do you know any of those people? Do you know any of those 6,000 people? Do you know who they are? If I said right now, go find 20 people that don't have any connection to a church in Wynn, arkansas would you be able to find those people? You know why we struggle at that point? Because I don't see them. I don't see them. They're not in my community. They're not in my network. They're not in my realm of relationships. They're not in my sphere of contact and influence. I drive past their houses. I drive past their their events that they're having and their experiences that they're having with other people. I don't even see them. And so one reason we don't cross those social boundaries is we're just blind. We don't see it. And that's not an indictment, but it is a challenge. We need to be aware of it. I don't... don't, And I'm not talking about being mean to somebody when I say I don't like those people. I just have different preferences. I like music differently than that person. Uh, I enjoy different activities than those people. I... um, I prefer a certain kind of football team than those people. And so when I say I don't like them, it's just I have have my own preferences, things that I enjoy, things that I appreciate. And sometimes when it comes to church, when that mindset comes to church, I like these people, not so sure about the rest of them. When I was in Southern California years ago, there was a certain kind of church that had been started out there Right after World War II, the very first Southern Baptist churches in California were started by returning servicemen coming back from the Pacific Theater. Many of them had trained in Southern California to, to be uh, soldiers, and they had gone and fought in World War II. They came back. Instead of coming back to Texas, instead of coming back to Oklahoma, instead of coming back to Arkansas, uh, they they bought houses in Los Angeles and San Diego and places like that, Bakersfield. And... Um, And so they started churches. These Southern Baptists who were planted out there, they started churches. And they were composed almost entirely of people from Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. We called them y'all clubs. And when I was there in the mid-1980s, many of those churches were dying off. In fact, I would talk to some of those pastors, and they would be coming back and preaching revival meetings in um, mountain home arkansas and i'd say brother who in the world do you know mountain home arkansas he said well half my church has moved back there and these people who had bought homes in the 40s and 50s early 60s their homes had quadrupled in value and and were five times more than what they had paid for it and they were selling off those homes coming back buying a nice place they thought they would enjoy the rest of their lives of course a lot of them didn't stay in mountain home but anyway Uh, They came back and settled, and those churches were dying. Why were they dying? Because they had never reached out to people different from them. They had never reached the native Southern California. That's not that way today, but that's what it was at the time. I don't like those people, so I surround myself with people like me. A fourth reason we will not cross our own social borders, I don't know those people. I don't know those people, and you may laugh at that, but sometimes we meet someone who's a stranger, they're a fear, they're a threat, they're outside my comfort zone. Um, I'm not making fun of anybody, but you ought to see what happens the first time somebody different or new walks into this room after church. I'm not looking at anybody in particular, but I've had more than one person come up grab me, or or a church members come and say, they came up and spoke to me, they said, who are those people? Who was that person? You know, most of the world, we see differences as threats. And we get anxious when we see something that's different or something unfamiliar. Around here, maybe we see someone and we we not only know who they are, we knew them in the seventh grade and we said, I didn't come to church, go people, go church with somebody like him. Now, they may have changed since the seventh grade, but we don't know that. God, God, meanwhile, when we say, I don't need, I don't see, I don't like, I don't know those people. Meanwhile, God wants them, sees them, likes them, and knows them. Why? Because they're his family. Or they're about to become his family. And if that's the way the Lord is, isn't that the way we should be? I thought about a neat t-shirt maybe we could give away after, after this particular message. And we would put on it, quit your click. You think those would sell? They would be your basic repent after church service (laughs) t-shirt. Quit your click. Okay. Know your social borders. If we're going to discover the family that God is building, I've got to know my social borders and then ignore them. I've got to be willing to step across those lines. Here's the second thing. There's another way to tear down barriers. Number two, see people as God sees people, then love them. See people as God sees people, then love them. In verse 28, Peter says, but God has shown me. Now, when did God show him? He showed him in those verses I read earlier, verses 9 to 17, the very first scriptures I read. Up to that moment, he didn't see what God saw. He didn't see the Gentiles as the unreached masses that God was sending Peter to. He didn't even see them. And many times, that's the way you and I are. We are ignorant and blind until he shows us. Now what's really remarkable with that encounter, that vision he had is that, first of all, Peter was abiding in Christ. You can be a spiritual person and still miss, miss out on what God's doing. He was abiding, he was praying. He was being faithful. He was preaching the gospel. He was, he was seeking the Lord. The second thing I see this, though, is that God confronted those parts of Peter that he was not even conscious of. His own religious bias, his own ethnic bias, his own cultural bias, his own comfort zone. The third thing I see is that God used a man with deep, deep cultural, deep religious, deep ethnic bias, and he used exactly that man to bring down the barriers. So as you're sitting there today and you think, Pastor, if you only knew how hard my heart is, how hard my heart has been, can I suggest to you that what God did in Peter's life and he used Peter mightily is what he might want to do in your life and then do in your heart. Well, Peter had his way of doing things. He had his comfort zone. You and I can come to church. We can come at the same time each week. We can come, sit, listen, good sermon, bad sermon, go to my Bible study group, uh, get into my comfortable activities and get into my routine. Peter had his way. He had his comfort zone. But dear one, you cannot assault the gates of hell from your comfort zone. God did not, Jesus is not building a church where you and I can be comfortable And undo the lies of the enemy. The devil lies to people. He lies to you and me about our worth, about our value to God and our value to the Father. To drive this home, I want you to uh, see something in just a moment. But let me set it up this way. Uh, There's a couple, um, Dr. Kenneth and Mamie Clark. Mamie Clark was born and raised in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Both of them were professors and researchers. Uh, Her work in particular specialized in the childhood development, early childhood development of African American children in the middle of the last century, late 1930s and 1940s. Their research was used in the 1954 Supreme Court decision, Brown versus the Board of Education, which overturned the separate but equal doctrine and declared it unconstitutional. Part of the way their research was used is that they argued that African-American children were psychologically and emotionally damaged by attending segregated schools. in 1947, before, long before the Supreme Court case, they were conducting this research. Uh, in the research that they used, they would bring preschool children and public school children from segregated schools. And the segregated schools they they used, the sampling of children that they used were from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas, and Hot Springs, Arkansas. The uh, children from second research, they used two, came from New England, Massachusetts, places like that. And in their research, they used two dolls. They used a brown or dark-skinned doll and a light-skinned doll with yellow hair. They were otherwise identical, just different, different colors. And, um, and they would ask these children questions about these dolls. And I want you to hear what Dr. Clark later recalled about their research. He said, and the questions were very simple. You know, show me a white doll, and the child would choose a white doll. We had two white dolls and two brown dolls. Show me the doll that's a white doll. Show me the doll that's a a brown doll. We had a series of about three or four questions that were concerned with knowledge of the difference, and we had questions that were concerned with preference, like show me the doll that you like to play with. Show me the doll that's a nice doll. Show me the doll that's a bad doll. And after we asked these preference questions in which a majority of these children disturbingly rejected the black or brown doll and described positive characteristics to the white doll, not all, but the majority did. Then the most disturbing question, the one that really made me, even as a scientist, upset, was we then asked the final question, now show me the doll that's most like you. And It was disturbing because many of the children were emotionally upset at having to identify with the doll that they had rejected. Some of them would walk out of the room or refuse to answer that question. Now this research has been rerun many times. and um, And I want to show a, a brief example. This was a one done with just twenty one kids in two thousand and five in uh, New York and it and it reveals some of the things I want you to see, so watch this.
1: In Brown versus Board of Education, the famous case that desegregated schools in the 1950s, Dr. Kenneth Clark conducted a doll test with black children. He asked them to choose between a black doll and a white doll. In most instances, the majority of the children preferred the white doll. I decided to reconduct this test, as Dr. Clark did, to see how we've progressed since then. Can you show me the doll that you like best, or that you'd like to play with? This one. This one. I like that one. Show me. I can. This one. That one? This one. I like to play with this. And can you show me the doll that is the nice doll? And why is that the nice doll? She's white. And can you show me the doll that looks bad? Okay. And can you give, and why does that look bad? Because it's black. Hmm. And why do you think that's a nice doll? Because she's white. And can you give me the doll that looks like you? Fifteen out of the 21 children preferred the white doll.
0: Everyone struggles who comes into this auditorium. I don't care what your background. If you walk in here the first time, it's intimidating. Will people like me? Will people care about me? And then just walking in, all of us walk in with our own insecurities. We we have things, if we stood you in front of a mirror and you say, what do you like about yourself, what do you don't like about yourself, you point to things nobody else sees, but you feel it, you, you think it. My ears are too big, my eyes are too far apart, my, I'm too heavy, I'm too too thin, I, I, my nose is too big. We all have those kinds of thoughts and those kinds of experiences and those kinds of feelings. I'm not calling you to political correctness today, but to Holy Spirit compassion. Will you set your heart right now that when anyone walks into our fellowship? But you'll take your stand and say, God, let me see what you see. Let me see as you see. And let me love as you love. The last thing I want to mention, we we need to know our social borders, then ignore them. See people as God sees them, then love them. But there's one more way to tear down the barriers. Number three, see the differences, then explore them see the differences then explore them in verse 28 but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean see the differences then explore them again it's easiest for us to think in terms of racial differences because it seems like there's always a headline about that living in the south many of us have had experiences Years ago, serving on staff of a church in South Louisiana, I remember vividly when the first African-American family joined our church. Uh, before I went on that staff of that church full-time, I had worked in, in, in an engineering firm, was in and out of petrochemical facilities and chemical plants, and met all kinds of people. And I ha- actually happened to know um, the woman in this couple. Her name was Shundria, Tony and Shundria Marion lovely African-American couple. They came, sat in the back of the church, listened to the sermons. Uh, God was working in their heart. Uh, They already knew Jesus, loved the Lord. One day our pastor, you've met him, Emil Turner. One day our pastor was walking down the hallway and one of the older men stopped him in the hallway and said, Pastor, I'm very concerned. And if you know Doc Turner, you don't say things like that to him. But anyway, He said, I'm very concerned. And Abel looked at him and said, what's wrong? He said, you know that that black couple that's been visiting our church? Dr. Turner said, yes. He said, I'm afraid they're about to join. Dr. Turner just paused a moment. He leaned in. He said, can I tell you something? The man said, what? He said, it's worse than you think. And The man said, really? He said, yeah, they're both Aggies. Graduates of Texas A&M, sometimes the differences that we see between ourselves are deeply ingrained and we wrestle with them, we we struggle with them. I want to give you some help today on what to do with them. When, When Peter says, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean, you need to understand that what he was dealing with was not a black and white problem, it was a heart problem. It was an attitude that he had towards another race or another group of people. When he says, I should not call, that God showed me, I should not call, means don't say it, don't think it, don't joke about it, don't ignore it. Why? Because God said, don't call any man common or unclean, because it's not true. No one here is common or unclean. No man is common. That word common means beyond God's desire to love them, that they're so profane, they're so messed up, they're so out of, out of kilter with what God intended for a human being that they are, they are common. But that's not the truth about anybody that you meet. The truth is that they are not profane. God loves them. God cares for them. God sent Jesus to die for them on the cross. Not only is no man common, no man is unclean. And that word means ceremonially, beyond God's ability to wash them up, to forgive their sin, to change their heart. No man is beyond God's power to clean or purify him. And so you and I find ourselves in a place where we recognize that there are differences. We should be one in the body of Christ, but we have very real differences. Much more than just racial differences, we have differences. Differences of thought. Differences of experiences. We have different stories. We have different places where we have lived. Different places where we've been. We have different values. Things that we think are important. Things that we prefer. We have different conflicts in our lives. Different struggles in our lives. Different fears and anxieties in our lives. There's lots to explore. So I want to give you four reasons why we should explore and not ignore our differences. You know, one of the when we do talk about race, one of the things that people will say, in their efforts to resolve their own struggle internally, is they'll say, "Oh, I'm not, I'm not racist. I'm colorblind. I'm colorblind." I want to say to you, as your pastor today, don't be colorblind. Don't ignore people's differences. There's a reason that they're different. There's a reason that you're different, by the way. Don't ignore those differences. I remember. Uh, a buddy of mine, we ran track together in high school. Our mothers carpooled. He was African-American. He was African-American family. We were white family, but our mothers, we carpooled together. We rode together every day, back and forth from school to our homes. One day, we were riding in the back seat. I was sitting by one window. Daryl, my buddy, was sitting by the other window, and my little two-year-old brother was sitting in the middle. And he was just staring at Daryl. Obviously, my two-year-old brother had never seen very many African-American people. As Daryl and I were talking, we were cutting up, laughing in the back seat. My brother looks over at Daryl, and he says, hey. Daryl looks down at my two-year-old brother, and he says, what? My brother says, did you know the bottom of your hands are white? My mother, who was driving in the front, was appalled. She was horrified. She said, Doug, my brother's name. And she was horrified. Daryl took it all in stride. He looked at the bottom of his hand. He said, well, Doug, why no? I never noticed that. (laughs) But dear ones, we should know about our differences and we should explore them. Let me give you four reasons why we should explore and not ignore our differences. Just forget this idea of being colorblind. Number one, our God-given differences are beautiful. Our God-given differences are beautiful. Who made you that way? Who made you that way? Whatever way that you are right now sitting in the pew, God made you. And God, as the old saying goes, doesn't make junk. He designed you. He wired you. He he gifted you. He made you what you are. He's not finished with you yet. And if you know Christ, he's very much at work in your heart. He's changing you. He's molding you. But our God-given differences are beautiful. Number two, our God-given differences are missional. Missional. Now, the basic concept of missional is to be a missionary, to go outside the walls of your your comfort zone. But listen, this idea of exploring our differences is embedded in the Scripture. The Great Commission says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnic groups, all the tribes, all the languages, all the different groups on the planet, and win Arkansas. I'm comfortable to people. The idea of being a missionary, the whole idea is to go from where I am comfortable to people that I don't know, that are not like me, that are different from me. Go to all nations and make disciples. Our God-given differences are missional. Number three, our God-given differences are essential. Now, we've talked about this. When God brings someone into the family of Winn Baptist Church, there's a reason God put them here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 17, it says, If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were the hearing, where would be the smelling be? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. We come to this table, we come to this room with different gifts, different abilities, different experiences, and we need them or God wouldn't have put you here in the first place. And so when you and I see someone new walk in the door, We should understand that what they bring to the table is essential, essential. And if you are coming in the door, we need you if God is leading you to plant your life here. Who you are, your experiences, your talents, your abilities, your spiritual gifts. If God's leading you, we desperately need you. Those differences are essential. Number four, our God-given differences are eternal. You say, Pastor, you just spent the first part of the sermon telling us we're to be one family. And now you're telling us our differences are eternal. Let me, let me give you a reason why I say that. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. This is worship in heaven at the end of time. And They sang a new song saying, You, who is that you? It's Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's one choir, but there's a lot of different kinds of people in it. Even when we enter eternity, the uniqueness of what God made when he made you is not erased. It is celebrated. And it is a basis of celebration through all eternity. Now, how do we respond family how do we respond maybe you're here today you're not a member of Win Baptist Church you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you hear this pastor talk about family and um, and you can sense the love of God here and you can sense what God is doing here and you say I want in I want to be a part of a family like that my 17 year old self says amen because that's what I was looking for I needed a place Where i could fit in where people would love me care for me and so i want to invite you in just a moment we're going to stand and sing and i'm going to invite you to come to jesus i'm going to invite you to come and receive him as your lord and savior he is the reason we are one in christ and because of his death on the cross and god doesn't hold it against you and neither will we and so god will forgive you god will wash you clean when you trust jesus And when you receive him as your Lord and Savior, you begin to follow him. He's going to change you. He's not going to leave you the way you are. And you will become a very precious part of the family of God.